Lord, we declare that we belong to you. And so, Lord, we declare what you have declared as truth, which is you are God. You are our God, and we are your people. And, Lord Jesus, you reign not only over all of creation, but this very room. We declare, Jesus, that you are king and that we are not. So, Lord, we pause here to listen to your word, to ponder it, to let it do its work in us through the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction and encouragement, building us up that we might live the lives that you have called us to, that we might see the kingdom as a treasure. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, I actually want to tackle this next section of, of James in kind of a, a big picture way. Um, I would love, in fact, I would love in this sermon to be able to break this into like three different sermons. But as I looked at it more, I just thought, you know what, this is a, this is a theme that James is, uh, um, is handling. And so let's deal with it in that way. And so um, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the wisdom that comes from above. And, and God's saying like this, this kind of mentality that James is, is talking to us about these different kingdoms. And we talked about the, par- the parallels with the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus declaring, this is what my kingdom is like. And it is um, countercultural to the world's kingdom. And so James is actually laying out a little bit similarly to the Sermon on the Mount of this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like to live this out. And so he says um, things like being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry um, because the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I'm kind of bummed that all the kids are out there because they would have been like doing hand motions and everything that we've been learning in Family Bible Lab for that. Um, but James is declaring that this is what it looks like. If you are submitted to Jesus as king, this is what your life will look like. And pay attention to what your life looks like because it reveals what you and I truly believe. And so he talks about the wisdom that's, that's from above, that when you seek wisdom, like let it be godly wisdom, kingdom wisdom. Don't buy in to the earthly and worldly wisdom. And then last week we talked about the heart of man, like the desire for the kingdom. That it's, that's what causes fights and quarrels. It's like our kingdoms clash. That if we, if we pursue our own kingdom and you pursue your own kingdom, then when our kingdoms want the same thing, then we go to war, we fight with each other. And that we do this idea of, of trying to compromise with God and trying to say, okay, I want my kingdom and, and I also understand that your kingdom's really powerful and so let's... Um, Let's, let's try to have like a treaty here together. Let's try to work this out and have some kind of compromise. So these are warnings today in these sections. Warnings about how then worldliness actually plays out in our lives. Right, so we have the wisdom of God in our head knowledge and understanding. Our heart is being um, pierced by asking, what is this desire, these passions that are at war within you? What do you desire? What are you pursuing in that? And then he's going to give three examples of how worldliness is actually playing out in front of them, in front of their very eyes. And the aim of this is not to condemn or to heap shame. It is to draw to repentance the kindness of God drawing to repentance 
that we might lay hold of the kingdom, that we might see in what ways are we pursuing our own kingdoms. Because we are a mixed bag. And we are constantly fighting this battle. What do we actually believe? How do our actions demonstrate what we believe? And the point for James here is not that we stop doing the bad actions and start doing the right ones. It's that we see our our broken works and our divided hearts and minds as an evidence of the heart problem that we have and that we turn to God to receive the fullness of a new life and to be new creations. So he says first, James chapter 4, verse 11, the first act, he's going he's gonna to draw out these three acts that are going to be used, words like boasting and arrogance and worldliness will all be used with this. All right, so he's going to be declaring this at, at this time. He's going to be saying, listen, you're going to be boasting in your arrogance, boasting in your kingdom, boasting in, in your power and your ability. And he's going to lay this out as examples of how we do this and with the desire of calling people to repentance. So he says, first is this boasting and arrogance of feeling our own self-righteousness playing out and judging one another. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So again, we see the parallels the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, like, do not judge, and he has a whole section about not judging, and this gets used and manipulated. It typically gets ignored by those who are self-righteous, and it gets abused by those who have a different kind of self-righteousness and like to judge judgmental people. And we talk about this all the time, that, that there's just like our world is full of judgmental people and people who judge judgmental people. That's it. Like those are the two categories of people that we have. And, and so we have to acknowledge that and realize that if we speak evil against one another, that we're doing something really um, specific here. What James is saying is when you do that, you're actually bringing judgment. You're casting judgment on your brother. And when you do that, you are putting yourself in the position of the judge, the interpreter of the law, the giver of the law, and the judge of the law. And he says there's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. So who are you to judge? And in case you were wondering, it's not you. James wasn't like following that up with, and it's, it's Steve over there in the corner. Like he's the guy. No, it's God. It's a rhetorical point of like, we all know there's one lawgiver. And yet what we see playing out often in the church is an act of boasting and arrogance that we are the judge of the law, that we understand perfectly the law, that we understand how people um, are, what their motives are, what their actions are. And we see this throughout scripture, the importance of our words. Do not speak evil against one another. And it's not just that you're speaking evil, it's what that reveals. And by the way, we don't just judge others as guilty, we then judge ourselves as innocent or at the very least, better than others. Jesus points this out in Luke 18. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it would be interesting and fascinating to see this in a real-life scenario. And my guess is if you had an exit interview with that Pharisee, that he would not immediately say, oh, you are so right, I was being really judgmental. My guess is that he wouldn't see it. I'm guessing that he would walk away saying, I wasn't being judgmental, I was just thanking God and stating facts. All those things that I accused him of, he does. And all those things are wrong. He might even get into a debate with you saying like, what are you saying that those things are okay? Are you saying that those things aren't against God's word? Listen to how he would use truth as a defense for the self-righteousness that will end up destroying him. Be mindful of this. And we look at that story and we immediately think, my guess is if, if I just took a poll right now and say like, man, how do you feel about the, tax or about the Pharisee's actions and the words that he said about the tax collector? I think most of us would feel some version of that's gross. That's repulsive. That's horrifying. But what happens in our hearts when these real life moments come up? See, think about what's the belief that's actually playing out for the Pharisee in that moment. The belief is that righteousness in heaven is about doing more good than bad and that we're graded on a curve. Like usually if you ask somebody like, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Why or why not? The, the answer that most people in our culture give, even within the church, is it's about trying to live a good life. I want to do more good things than bad things. And we think like, okay, that's the plan. We all, most of us are self-aware enough to know that we're not perfect, but what do we do when we say like, okay, well, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like them. At least I don't commit that sin. At least I don't do that thing. It could be so much worse. And we end up declaring with our actions and with what's going on in our thoughts that righteousness is about doing more good than bad and that we're graded on a curve. And if we're graded on a curve, then I don't have to actually be good, I just have to be better than you. It's like the old joke about if you're going camping with a group of friends, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than one of your friends. If the bear's chasing you. If the bear's not, then it's a moot point. But the idea is that we do this all the time. We do this a lot, church. I hear it, I see it in Facebook posts, I hear it in my own heart. And we need to be mindful of what James is saying here. 
Do we not see this everywhere? Do we not judge the actions of others and call it speaking truth, boasting in our own understanding of God's law? Do we not judge the motives of others, boasting in our understanding of the heart of man? Do we not create a law unto our own selves and form it, even often from Scripture, quoting Scripture, but we form our own law and then judge and condemn others for not obeying the law that we created? And don't we feel just fine in doing it, boasting in our own righteousness? And why do we do it? It's the classic elementary school wisdom of tearing others down so that we feel better. The tattletale tattles so that they will look good by comparison. No tattletale has ever given an anonymous note to the teacher. They want to be seen as the one that's calling out the unrighteousness so that they will be seen as righteous in comparison. It makes us feel secure in our righteousness. And by the way, it happens in reverse. If we can't compare ourselves positively with someone, then we'll, then we'll call them, we'll use their righteousness or their seemingly righteousness against them and call them judgmental or legalistic. I used to do this all the time around a couple of friends of mine who were following Jesus passionately at a time when I was very lukewarm in my faith. And their following of Jesus made me feel uncomfortable And it made me think that they thought they were better than everybody else. They thought they were holier than everybody else. But in hindsight, I now look that there is no evidence of that in them. They just really loved Jesus and were trying to follow him. And it spurred them to want to get up early in the morning and read the Bible and do things that I called legalistic. And either way, who are you to judge your neighbor? And look, this isn't the same thing as saying there's no right or wrong. This isn't relativism of saying like, well, hey, I'm sure everybody kind of lives out their own truth, so don't judge each other's truth. That's not what James is talking about. That's another perversion and abuse of that. That's not what he's talking about. What it means is that we trust God to be the righteous judge and that we understand that we should be shaking if, if we receive God's judgment apart from Jesus Christ. And so that we don't look at our own works and our own righteousness and compare with one another, but that we point to Jesus and we say, he is our righteousness. He is our hope. And to call that out when we realize what we are doing, to not to not like try to color it in a certain way that makes it look not so bad, but just to lay it bare and be like, Lord, right now I'm declaring my own righteousness in my judgment of this person. My desire isn't for their good. My desire isn't that they would find hope in you. My desire isn't that they would be freed from this addiction or from this pursuit and trying to find um, like their, their desires fulfilled in these false idols. That's not my desire right now, God. My desire right now is to show you how good I am comparison and it's gross and I repent of it to be laid bare to first remove the log in our own eyes so then we'd be able to see that we could offer something better to our brothers and our neighbors not judgment but hope for something greater that's where the difference that's where we declare things that are good and holy is by calling people to trust in Jesus that he is the one who fulfills all their desires 
And so we do that in finding our righteousness, not in our works, not in our comparisons, but in Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, being reminded then as we fix our eyes on Jesus, that's what righteousness actually looks like. It's not my pathetic attempt at that and being like compared to some mass murderer and being like, well, at least I'm not them or someone like an adulterer and being like, well, at least I'm not them. Like who cares how I actually speak to my wife? Like not any of that stuff that is gross in the kingdom of heaven comparing to Jesus and say, that's righteousness. And then to declare and say, by grace, that righteousness is yours, not by anything that you have done but by grace, and that's available to others. And then to realize that that righteousness that's been given to you is what you and I are being formed into. That's the power of God through the promise of the Holy Spirit that he says that righteousness that you see in Jesus has been given to you, and he promises that he will complete this work and turn you into that. Which is incredible. And in so doing, as we fix our eyes, we're not boasting in our own righteousness, we're boasting in His. And just think, by the way, if that happened, if, that's how, if that was our posture, so you saw the brokenness in the world, and the evil in the world, and the brokenness in us, and that if our hearts just kept being pulled to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus, come quickly. Like, you are our righteousness, you are our hope. Imagine how that would change the words that we would say to our neighbor. They'd no longer be words of condemnation. They would be words, maybe even of warning, but of hope in Jesus. They would be marked not by self-righteousness in comparison, but by the fruit of the Spirit. By love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The second one that he gives here is in verse 13. The second act of boasting and arrogance that James warns against is boasting in our own self-reliance and significance. So if we're our own kingdom, not only do we have to make sure that our kingdom is good and just and righteous, but we also then fight to make sure that our kingdom is under control and provided for through self-reliance and through significance. And he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So this is another situation that he is calling out in the church. And some of this seems really normal. Like what could be more normal than somebody who's a, a merchant or a, a, a business person to say, hey, we're, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to move to this town. We're going to set up shop. We're going to sell things. We're going to make money. But notice that what James is talking about is those aren't the things that are evil. There's a boasting that's happening here. And there's actually two boasts that we see that he's confronting. One is that they're boasting in their view of the future, 
thinking that they had control, saying like, because of our skills and our ability and what we know, this is what's gonna happen. We're gonna go and we're gonna make money and we're gonna, we're gonna dominate that area. We're gonna make our money and do whatever we want. We will be able to take care of ourselves. So they're boasting in their understanding of how the future to be able to control things that they do not have control over. And the second is boasting in their view actually of their selves, thinking that they have a significance and apart, uh, apart from God, that this, this is our identity, this is how we will claim our significance is by going and making money. And what we find is it's not actually about making plans, it's about putting our hope in our plans, about idolizing our plans, about putting our rest and our trust in our ability to make plans and to make those things happen, to making that the focus of our lives, setting our life about like a, a path and saying, this is what I want to achieve in my life. And I'm going to go about and I'm going to do it. Right now, and we've got, you know, I, I, have a, I have a senior. And so, like, this is very mindful to me as I listen to his friends. They talk about what are they going to do? What are they going to do with their lives? And many of us remember what that was like to say, okay, what's next? How, what am I going to do? And some have very clear goals about what they want to achieve and, and others aren't so sure. But there's a question of the heart in there. That if you make your life about setting these goals and about trying to control things that you can't control, it's silly. James is pointing out, you can't make any of those things happen. And even if you could, it's all here and gone in a moment. Like even if you could control all the things that you want to control and make all the things happen that you want to make happen, they will be gone. They're like a mist. They're just gone. And ultimately, we live in, our, in those ways as though we are the main character of the story of our own kingdoms. And this so describes so many of us as we just say, well, this is my life, and I want to live it in a way that's pleasing to God, but it's my life, my kingdom, my plans. And James says that is boasting and arrogant and evil. You're trying to live in two kingdoms, and it doesn't work. What's the answer then? Don't think about wanting to have a meaningful or significant life. Don't ever make any plans. Don't ever set any goals. I will tell you, when I was younger, I would have loved to hear that. Be like, see, I don't have to have any plans. Perfect. God loves like, people who are just you know, able to just fly by the seat of their pants. Awesome. That's not what he's saying. The problem isn't our search for significance or making plans, it's where we find our significance and who we think has our plans. See, God offers something better. The good news is that he knows our future, he orders our steps, and in him we find our significance. In God's kingdom, everything is significant and lasting. Look at the paradox here, the, the, the contrast. The contrast is in the world's kingdom, it's all mist. It's gone, poof. And in the, even the biggest things that you can imagine on this earth will be gone. And in God's kingdom, even the smallest things will last for eternity. That's the contrast. That's the question of do you believe that? 
That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And it's not just about eternity, it's right now. What do you really want from life? Whatever you're pursuing, whatever you think you're going to go do, whatever, you, whatever plans you're making, it's because you want something. What is it that you actually want? And I would just submit, it's not actually a retirement ca- cabin. What you want is rest. I would submit that it's what you really want is not a new car. It's some kind of hit of pleasure or joy. My, my submission would be, it's not about a new relationship. It's that you want to be loved. It's not about a a new career, it's about purpose. And the bottom line is that God offers you everything that you actually desire. You and I just have to get to a place where we trust him, that he knows the better gift and the better way to go about receiving that gift. And the enemy will tell you that you know better, that you know what will make you happy, That you know, even though everybody else you could look at and see that that purchase won't make them happy, that you know that it will actually make you happy. And let me ask you, those times that he convinces you of that, how many times has he been right? See, he paints a picture of God as an overbearing, miserly, stuck-up boss that demands that you do everything his way or else. That's the picture that Satan paints. That if he had his way, you would go through life miserable, never getting to do anything that you actually want to do and always having to be here, doing things that you don't want to do, listening to people you don't want to listen to, and being around people that you're secretly judging. The enemy paints you, or paints God, as like an Ebenezer Scrooge, who even if he does give you a break, it's like letting Bob Cratchit go home early on Christmas Eve. And many of us buy into that idea of God. That at best we get to a place where we're like, oh, it's like serving God and pursuing the kingdom is like vegetables. And I really don't like vegetables, but I know they're good for me. So I know that's better. And so then we try to figure out how do I have like a balanced diet that I'm, yeah, I'm going to eat my broccoli, but, but man, I want to eat some cake too. Like I'd like to have a piece of pizza too. And what's wrong with that? And all of that is declaring that our God is just the God of steamed unbuttered broccoli over-steamed, unbuttered broccoli. (laughs) That is not who our God is. That is not who our God is. The Bible paints a very different picture, a God who is extravagantly generous, a good father who loves giving good gifts to his children, a joyful father who throws a party for his rebellious son who has returned home. A God who became flesh and walked among us and made sure that parties kept going longer and longer. A God who created all the hobbies and all the things that you think will bring you fulfillment. Guess what? He created them so that you could enjoy them. But he created them so that you would enjoy them as gifts from him and not worshipped as gods. The question is just who do you believe? 
As long as we live as the main character of our own kingdom, then we're going to believe those other lies and we're going to think, well, but if I want to enjoy my life and have a life of significance, I am the master of my own domain. And James says that's boasting. It's evil and arrogant and it will lead to destruction. Or you say, no, my significance is in Christ and his kingdom and I'm going to pursue him with everything that I have knowing that that's where I'm going to receive everything that I truly desire. To realize he orders our steps and numbers our days. He, his plan is one of significance for us, and it's better. Because like we said, even, even like what, what's the end game of your own kingdom? Like even if you were to accomplish everything, what's going to happen? It's a mist. It's a vapor. Think of the most accomplished people in the history of the world. Da Vinci, a mist. Right? George Washington, a mist. Brett Favre, a mist. Like, does anybody even ever think about him anymore? Only when YouTube recommends, like, hey, remember this 30 years ago? Like, that's all that, that's what happens to even people that we think are the most, like, these are the most important people. They're gone. Poof. And when you wake up in the morning, even on your own day-to-day life, pursuing your own kingdom, it ends up being a mix of trying to accomplish your own plans, which then means getting frustrated with others for being an obstacle to you accomplishing your own goals and plans, which creates bitterness and frustration, and then feeling guilty and ashamed for not accomplishing what you set out to do. Or others, in, in rejection of that, just go on autopilot and, and, and just let the dr- days drift by with no purpose and no meaning. And God offers a better way. That you get to wake up every single morning knowing that you serve the sovereign God of the universe who is actively and intimately involved in your life. And every day, he says to you and to me, I'm doing incredible things today. Why don't you join me? Like a father who invites their son to go to work with them, saying, we're going to do some great things today. Come with me. Every day. And I would just submit, if, if we did all that God asked us to do in a day, if you just could have one day where all you did was what God was asking you to do, what he was calling you to do. Maybe it's getting up, eating breakfast, going to work, loving your coworkers, sharing the gospel, maybe with someone like pointing to him, loving your kids in the way that you've been called, just doing, maybe serving in the church family, whatever it is, but only the things that he asked you to do, nothing more and nothing less. If we could do that one day, that day would be full of fulfillment and joy and rest and peace our days brimming with significance not because our circumstances would all be easy but because our rest and our hope and our peace is in him abiding in him listen the reason we're burned out is not because god is asking too much of us it's because of ourselves it's because we're trying to balance two kingdoms and it's hard It's hard enough to do all the things I think I should be doing in my own kingdom and then I gotta do what God is wanting from me. 
But that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things that you think you're pursuing, that you desire, those are gonna be fulfilled too. He's extravagantly generous and gracious and patient. And that's why he says, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. It's not a flippant statement or an add-on or some way to appease God so he doesn't think we're boasting or, or being evil in any way. It's just saying, like, man, this is, this is what it looks like for me when I'm functioning well. I always like to give that caveat, lest you think that this is like, every day I hop out of bed like this. No. But the days that I do, it's like, hey, this is, this is what I think I'm supposed to do today. This is my plan for today, God, if you will. Like, I'm going to try to run these errands. This is what I'm going to do. But you know what? If you interrupt me at the grocery store and give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, like, your, your will be done. Like, if I go wherever I'm going, whatever I'm trying to accomplish or whatever, like, I'm, a, I'm one that's trying to be moved by God in the moment and saying, like, listen, Lord, your will be done. Each day is significant. And if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it in that moment, that's what James is talking about is sin. But we could say the opposite. For anyone who knows the right thing, and you say, like, this is what the Lord is moving in me to do, and you do it in faith, for you it is life. Here's what I'm going to do. There's one more. It's this awesome warning to the rich, and it's heavy. And I don't, I don't want to rush it, but I feel like the Lord has said what he needs to say today. I feel like we're where God wants us to be. So in a very real moment, real time, I, actually, I didn't even notice that that was an illustration of the thing right now. Anybody else catch that? I'm just sitting here, sorry, this is all real-time processing. I've said before to people, like, my brain is going like a million different directions all at once. It's just like the curse, I guess, and a blessing at times. But in this moment, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, Lord, do you want me to do this? And I'm feeling like, no. So I'm like, well, but then that's going to throw off the preaching schedule, and I'm going to have to come back to this, and saying like, that's okay. And so then I realize, oh, wait, this is actually a, a, an illustration of the thing that we're talking about. I had plans to preach these three points, and the Lord's saying, no. I was like, okay, I'm not. Don't worry, Jeff, this doesn't mean you have to preach something different next week. Even in the moment, he has given graciously like the, the plan forward. And, and I'm not concerned about this right now. We're going to come back to James 5, 1 through 6, because I do think it's a really important and a complex issue for us in, in our culture. But here's the reality of what we want for today. That our God is a good and gracious father. His kingdom is everlasting. And his desire for us is to participate and become heirs of that kingdom. He's not looking for servants that he just like, can kind of marginalize or take advantage of. He doesn't need anything. Right? Like the, the scripture says that we don't have anything to offer God as though he's served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Like we, don't, we don't add anything to the kingdom. God, in his generosity, says, I want to share it with you. And I want to share it. And one day, it's going to be shared in full. But even today, you and I can share in that generosity of the kingdom. And we can confront when we are pursuing our own kingdom, the worldliness as we speak evil, to cut that off in our own hearts. And so this week, just watch for that. When you want to say something judgmental, consider your heart. 
Remind yourself that your righteousness comes from Christ and so offer Christ. Do you realize that? Like if you're judging somebody, if you're judging somebody, what you're saying is like my righteousness comes from my adherence to this principle and so what you're offering them is you should also obey this principle. But if your righteousness comes from Christ, then what you will offer is Christ. And when you find yourself getting riled up about your plans not going the way that you want them to and your fear of whether your, your kingdom is going to advance or whether you're going to get everything accomplished or you're stressed out or if you're the opposite personality and you determine in yourself like, no, nah, that's why I just don't worry about anything and I'm just going to kind of go through life and whatever happens, happens. Both realize that God has created you and he's placed you here for a reason. And what that means is both, it's every single day has the opportunity for incredible significance. And yet, with, from the perspective of a father who loves you and just wants you to join in his work. We've used this illustration before, but it's like a, it's like a two-year-old or a three-year-old going with their dad to the construction site. That dad doesn't need the three-year-old to hammer in a bunch of nails. He doesn't need the three-year-old to measure everything like, as if it's going to fall apart if he doesn't do it. What he wants is for him to participate with him and to enjoy that together. That's who your father is every day doing miraculous things all around you and saying, join me. This is way better than the things that you're pursuing. So Jesus is our righteousness. He is our hope. He is our rock and our foundation. So church, imagine what it would be like if together we fixed our eyes on him and became people who spoke life and hope to one another and people who are so single-mindedly focused on the kingdom that we pursued him and all these other things were added unto us. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. We thank you, God, that you love us and that you are with us and and even in this moment, Lord, I just, I'm just so thankful, God, that you are the one that works in hearts. And Lord, that we, that we sing and we minister to one another and you know, try to preach faithfully and, and we pray and we do all these things in faith, but knowing, Lord, that you are the one that changes lives. You are the one that transforms hearts. You are the one who gives life. And so, Lord, let us not... Let's not pursue our own kingdoms, even the parts of our kingdoms that we think are good and, and have some biblical principles. Lord, let us just abide in you, Lord Jesus. Let us just wholeheartedly just say, like, I want to be with you. I want to be doing what you're doing. And Lord, we're mindful of that. Like even the small things of faith that we do, like even making oatmeal for a child or going into work and, and serving on a factory line or being a cashier at a, at a grocery store, or being a doctor, or being whatever. Like, Lord, you call us to faithfully serve and love our neighbor. And so all of those things now have incredible kingdom significance. If we would only reject our own measly kingdoms that are here today and gone tomorrow, that we would realize that our calling from you is to be faithful in the moment. It is not us trying to think up 
all the big things that we could do for you or for our kingdom or anything, but to rest in you and trust you and to be faithful to what you have put right in front of us and to do that day after day, moment after moment, abiding in you, feeling your presence, feeling your pleasure, pleasure, and experiencing the joy and the peace and the abundant life that you have for us. Lord, we repent and ask for your forgiveness for pursuing our own kingdoms. And we just say, Lord, you are better. We want more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.